0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman, and welcome to The Loop. The last two weeks of headlines have held a lot of pain for Canadians of Asian descent, but it's not new. It's something they've been feeling for an entire year. Reports are actually showing a really steep rise in hate crimes against Asian Canadians since the start of the pandemic, ranging from online and verbal abuse to actual physical attacks. So CBC reporter Mindariwal spoke to a bunch of Edmontonians who've experienced anti-Asian racism, and he's going to share some of their stories with us. Plus, if you imagine spending the majority of this past year in a single room, it feels really stressful. But that's the reality for so many Edmonton seniors who are living and have lived through the entire pandemic in long-term care. So I called up one of my friends, who's in his 80s, to talk about being on the inside while the pandemic rages outside of his assisted living home. And where would we be this last year if we didn't have food? CBC's Madeline Cummings is going to take us behind the scenes of food blogs, where we're going to discover why sometimes you have to go on a long journey through someone's childhood memories before you can ever start baking.
2: I think it terrifies because we couldn't do anything about it and like no one stopped to help us. And all we could do was just tr- run away when this man started like chasing after us. And it's very scary when it's like, like it's normal for people to start like coming up to us and like whisper coronavirus as I, pa- as I pass them. I Mommy, mean, why are some people calling Chinese people coronavirus? I'm not coronavirus. So try explaining this to your children. I feel like I always need to keep my guard up at all times because really, uh, no one is safe or exempt from ignorance, racism, and violence.
1: That's Alice Yang, a 16-year-old Edmonton student, and Simi Chung, an associate professor at Concordia University, and a mom. They're talking about experiencing anti-Asian racism. For Asian Canadians, a year of COVID has been more than a time of isolation. It's been a year filled with online abuse, verbal abuse, physical attacks, acts of hate. Anti-racism organizations have tracked the sharp rise in hate crimes since the start of the pandemic, and CBC's Min Darwal looked at what this means in our city. Hey, Min. Hi, Claire. So, I mean, let's start with what organizations have actually recorded over the last year. What's happened?
0: Yeah, you kind of touched on it in, in the intro, but uh, there, there's an association, a national association, um, Chinese association, that uh, was tracking, uh, you know, how many times uh, people have been, whether it be physically, verbally, attacked, uh, because of their race and i I think in the past year it's over a thousand uh different incidents, which really i mean it blew my mind and 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 that wasn't the reason why we we went to talk to some of these people It was a former colleague of mine who who put a post up on her Facebook and she's Asian Canadian and talking about the 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 rampant racism that she's facing that her her son was facing and and it just kind of hit me maybe because I know her. And, you know, there was that connection. And then as soon as I started just talking to some people in my network, the numbers and names started flowing in and I was just, I really was overwhelmed.
1: Yeah. These issues in the news, right? The second you know someone and you start opening your eyes to it. Yeah. It's so much more personal than any of us realize. Yes. We heard Alice off Mm -hmm. the top. Can you tell us what her experience was and what she talked to you about?
0: Yeah, definitely. So Alice uh, is a great uh, young girl. I mean, she's 16 years old. She goes to old Skona, a great head on her shoulders. Uh, She, You know, told me about her experience in the past year and uh, what it's been like uh, during the pandemic. And and she alluded to an incident on White Ave. So Old Skona is right near White Avenue. So, you know, her and her friends were hanging out uh, uh, and they were going for a walk. And she said um, all of a sudden this guy, uh, you know, Caucasian male started running towards them through a rock. Uh, you know, and started calling them names and then chased after her. Oh my and so uh, as a 16-year-old, I mean, I remember when I was 15 and 16, I mean, I, you know, I'm a guy, a little different. But, uh, you know, talk about being intimidated and uh, something that will stay with you for for life, really. You talk about y- the impact it will have on you mentally, physically. It was something else to hear her tell that story simply because she is an Asian-Canadian. Yeah, You know, that's why she was uh, targeted and because of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Incidents like that are are shocking. Uh, Did she say that if this past year has felt worse or are things changing in a way around the kind of racism she's facing?
0: You know, I asked her that and she said before the pandemic, uh, you know, acts of racism, uh, you know, derogatory names being uh, thrown out there amongst teenagers, it, it happened. It, it's been happening. But before the pandemic, it was kind of some people would laugh it off. But she said in the past year, uh, she's really noticed like some allies who come from all different backgrounds, you know, in her in her group of friends. And so, you know, now if someone uses the N word or says it's something derogatory uh, towards an Asian Canadian or somebody black or, you know, any any minority, uh, people will stand up for for them. And she's noticed that quite a bit. So that was, you know, at least something optimistic uh, that that people can kind of hold on to that, uh, you know, a lot of people are are kind of saying enough is enough. And if they hear it, they're they're saying something.
1: Yeah, there's seeds of change. But on the other side... We look at events like that of Atlanta, right? right? The killings in Atlanta, eight victims, six of them were women of Asian descent, mm-hmm. even um, different violent attacks we've seen across North America. Uh, there was a social media video out this week of uh, a young Asian couple in Canmore that overheard a racist conversation. Right. How are all of these different things affecting how people feel here at home?
0: Well, I think for the groups that, that uh, I mean, you know, Asian Americans being killed, uh, It has a direct impact on on Asian Canadians, Asians anywhere. You know, people like Alice and and Simi and, um, you know, Jing, who I spoke to, uh, all females. Yeah, they feel vulnerable and and they should be. They should feel that way. I mean, you know, having someone kill you because of what you look like or where you're from. I mean, that attacks you to the core. Right. And I mean, even in the city, we've seen Muslim women being attacked uh, who wear hijabs. I mean, why is that happening? You know, I've grown up here my entire life. I can't remember a time when that ever happened, uh, let alone happened two, three, four times within a couple of weeks. You know, people didn't say anything. They may have said stuff inside their homes or whatever, but to your face, they they were fine. And and for me, the the disappointing thing out of all of this is that – here we are in 2021. Like my family came here in the mid-70s. To me, I didn't see people looking. They might have kind of looked and, and, and wondered, hey, this guy looks different. Like, yeah. But they never said anything. They didn't tell him to go back to where he came from. But yet here we are 40 years later, 45 years later, and it feels like we've regressed um, you know, before these kinds of beliefs existed in small pockets wherever they were. But there wasn't a platform to kind of uh, you know, put it out there and, and speak, speak to it. Now all of a sudden, you can pick up your phone and you can just uh, say something about someone as hurtful as you want. And, yeah. and there's no ramifications. You know, there's nobody knocking on your door or, or calling you out on what you're saying. That all of a sudden gives people the green light.
1: Another conversation you had that you said stuck with you was with Simi um, yes. as a mom. Right. Mm-hmm. What did she tell you about the experience of raising two daughters in a world that feels like this?
0: Yeah, that was another eye-opening uh, conversation. And these all happened one after another. So I was just, I felt so, you know, I felt so helpless for these people. Like, I wish I could, there's something I could do. But yeah, Simi was, uh, I, I mean, she, she she spoke from the heart. She has a six-year-old and an eight-year-old daughter. And, and she spoke about uh, conversations that she has with both her daughters. I mean, her and her husband have kind of battled about whether or not they should protect their kids from racism by maybe not talking to them because they're too young, but Simi feels that she has to have those conversations with them mm-hmm. and 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 not just kind of conversations that say you have to watch out for this or what whatever conversations about what would you do in a situation if someone called you that name yeah. or if you saw somebody else uh, being bullied or you saw r- somebody being racist towards somebody else, you know what can you do to help that person so uh, you know those are those are heavy conversations for a six year old and an eight year old to have but Absolutely. it sounds like her kids are open to it. And I think a lot of kids, you know, I think we underestimate uh, how, uh, you know, kids can handle those kinds of conversations. I mean, you know, in our house, uh, I have an 11 year old and a 14 year old. I've had those conversations with them too. Yeah. Because I think as a, you know, a visible minority, I think you have to prepare your kids for that. Because if, if you don't, and they go out there and all of a sudden, they hear it, uh, you know, you, you almost have to arm them in a way with with the knowledge of. You can't take it personally. You have to thicken that skin a little bit. It's going to happen, right? It's going to happen, and it's all in how you react to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: You talk about wanting to help, right? When you're hearing all of these stories, what is being done to help to change the situation? Are there support groups coming up? Are there different community groups and supports for Asian Canadians right now?
0: Definitely. Well, I think what we're doing right now, helping these people share their experiences, share their stories, I think it'll open people's eyes, their ears mm-hmm. to what's really going on out there. I think that's you know a, a huge step. Uh, you know, for instance, Alice is part of a group that's it, called COVID. Then the number nine dash teen, and so this is a group that they've put together over the last year, and it goes across the country. Uh, Asian Canadians, teens who have uh, a platform where they can share their experiences and, and support each other because you know this is this is their experience here in Edmonton uh you, you could probably go to any city across North America, across Canada, and there will be people sharing similar stories of, you know, people spewing hate or experiences of, of racism. So, you know, what I think people like Alice and Jing and Simi and Jason sharing their stories and, and standing up to it, I think that's that's what we have to do now, right? We have to do that now. I mean, these people are all born here, right? They're Edmontonians. Yeah, they're Edmontonians. They're Canadians, they just, they, they just look different. They may speak a different language. They, they may share a different culture. That's the only difference. But other than that, they're the same as you and I. And, and, and I think, you know, by, by talking to people and explaining that to people, you know, if you can, if you can change one person's mind, I think you've, you know, you've, you've met, met a goal there for sure.
1: Back in the fall, I received a call from a listener of CBC who is reaching out about a story that we did on seniors. That listener and I have since become sort of friends. Hubert Honeycott is 82 years old. He'll be 83 in September, and he lives in the Summerwood Retirement Village in Sherwood Park. And while so many of us have experienced lockdowns and isolation throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Edmonton seniors, especially those in assisted living, have experienced that on a different level. And it's a place the rest of us, save for care workers, haven't really been able to go. So I reached out to my pen pal Hubert to talk about his experience and lessons from a COVID year in continuing care. I called him up just a few days after he came out of a strict lockdown where his care home saw nine deaths. Hello? Hi, it's Claire calling. How's it going? Very well, very well. When did COVID actually start changing things for you? Was it this time last year? Were things a little normal for a bit?
3: Yes, it was. There was a lull in there, right? Uh, And then we had to lock down for whatever it was, several weeks. And and that wasn't bad uh, because even though we had a quarantine or a lockdown, whatever you want to call it, we were still able to use the uh, exercise equipment. The the exercise rooms were open. Uh, We were allowed out, although we weren't allowed to go off the premises, we were allowed to go outside and walk around and all these sorts of things. So, in actual fact, the the quarantine didn't seem as if we were quarantined. We had meals in our rooms, but other than that, that was majority of the extent of what we were doing. In January, of course, we had our first um, uh, vaccination. And then several days later, we had an outbreak of, uh, of the virus. And from mid-January now until now, uh, then we've been quarantined and uh, confined to our suites. Um, and the only contact we would have had uh, was with the people who were delivering meals. So that was a real kick in the teeth, uh, it was no doubt about that.
1: I mean, I feel like that's such a, a tough situation. Vaccines come. It's hopeful, right, when, when you see them coming through and people in in your community start to receive them. But then right away, you've got a case.
3: Oh, I I tell you, Claire, that that was just unbelievable. I was under the impression and, you know, rightly or wrongly so. But I'm thinking that if I get the virus or if I get the vaccination, I can, you know, meet with our friends, meet with our family, all these sorts of things. Maybe even go and have a coffee with someone, you know, that I haven't done for six months. But then, you know, the virus came on and it was just like a tidal wave that washed over us. And uh, I don't know the total number of cases that we had, but for me, it was just devastating. Uh, I don't know how much longer I could have taken and not, uh, not gone over the edge in terms of a nervous breakdown.
1: That's so hard to hear, Hubert. I'm so sorry.
3: Well, you know, it was it, but it, it yes it is hard to hear but it was a fact of life. You know, I'm I'm an active person and I just wanted to do my exercise. My normal schedule is I get out of bed in the morning, shave, shower, haircut, whatever. And then I do my yoga, I do my exercise, I go for breakfast, I read the newspaper, do the sudoku. Uh, do the crossword puzzle, uh, and then I sit and I write for an hour or so. You know, so I've got something going all day, and now all of a sudden, uh, my exercise program is taken away, my walking is taken away, I can't go and have coffee with my friends and neighbors and, and family. So it for me, it was really a kick in the in the gut.
1: And I know, too, speaking of some of the deaths that occurred, one of them was very close to you physically, right? Uh, well, my neighbor, my next-door neighbor. What's that experience like? Because I feel like that's something
0: oh,
1: many oh, of us I, have a hard I, time imagining.
3: You know, I, I I saw in the morning, it was early in the morning, when they came to take the lady away. Now, she didn't die in, in the residence here. She died at the hospital. Nevertheless, I mean, when they took her away, I was it was a flood that came over me, no doubt about that. It was a veil that was just, I was just devastated for a number of days. I just wanted to, I didn't want to do anything or, or see anybody, but, you know, and then of course, a few days later, I find that not only did my next door neighbor die, but the neighbor crossed the corridor. Uh, she also came down uh, with, uh, uh, with the virus. So, um, now I'm really caught. <laughs> so it's not a it's not a good feeling at all.
1: No, although I mean you you do have both of your vaccinations now, right? How how does that well, yeah. feel? How does that factor into where you're at right now?
3: Well, it it did it, it it factored in quite well actually. And again, I guess I look back at it and I come to think about. it. Because I went and I had my first one and we were told that within three or four weeks we would have the second one. And we did, uh, right on schedule. But when I came back after receiving my vaccination, uh, I came back to my my condo and I'm thinking, am I selfish or greedy that I've got two and there's a lot of people who have none? And and that, that played on me for a while until I came to realize that I had no control over what was given or the schedule that they made. So then I, I sort of said, okay, well, if that's mine, well, I'll take it. And uh, But all these things play on your mind when you're alone. And uh, I, I find that uh, at the end of the day, it was quite devastating, to say the least, uh, for a number of, of weeks here.
1: What has the relationship been like with your family throughout this? Not being able to see them the way you normally would.
3: Thank God we have a system going where we phone every day. I talk to both my kids every day. That I think is you know one of the, the big things about life is that uh, you have to you have to be dependent on people. You can't be you can't be a, 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 an island unto yourself. You you've got to depend on other people.
1: Hubert, I mean, I know it's a big question, but what's changed for you in the past year? And what do you think will continue to be different going forward?
3: Well, in my thinking process, I, I don't think anything is going to change drastically. Uh, how I do things, though, will always be, will always, or forever, I should say, will be changed. Because right now, no matter where I go or who I talk with, I'm always going to be aware uh, if the person beside me has COVID or not. And that, I think, is going to stay with me until the day I die. And the other thing I think is that I'm not going to be as aggressive in terms of a- accepting offers, invitations to go different places you know we would we were we did a lot of traveling and uh, so those things are over for me I don't think life will ever be the same as it was I just can't see that taking place
1: there are pop-ups to navigate there are ads in the middle of um, a narrative there's a whole pile of scrolling that has to happen through a storyline that leads up to an eventual recipe. Um, it's, it's very distracting. There are pop-ups to request that you join their mailing list and, and it's, uh, it's overload. You don't know which things you're supposed to be looking
2: at and there's pictures everywhere. Is that something I'm supposed to be, you know, is it relevant to my recipe or is it the pop-up for something? And it's, yeah, it's pretty confusing. It's a whole sensory
1: experience that happens before you actually get to make the recipe. That's Alex Tom, a former blogger and home cook, talking about the intros to online recipes. If you use Google in the kitchen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You start the hunt for chocolate chip cookies, and you end up reliving someone's childhood summer camp memories. CBC's Madeline Cummings looked into these nutritional novellas. Hey, Madeline, how's it going?
2: Hey, Claire, how are you?
1: I'm good. I mean, are you big on cooking or, and using kind of new recipes from the web?
2: Yeah, you know, this has been something I've been doing a lot of this year during the pandemic. We're not going to restaurants right now. So like many people, um were cooking a lot more at home. And just to stick with the cliche, uh, we've been baking a lot of sourdough. Oh, yeah. And Claire, like I've come so far with my sourdough. Uh, initially, I was making these dense dark footballs. But now I'm actually getting to the stage where I have a respectable bowl with actual air pockets. And part of that has been um, watching videos on food blogs and reading super long stories and steps. Um, And it's definitely been a part of my journey.
1: I mean, one, I'm really proud of you. Um, Thank you. But I mean, then these stories, these kind of prologues to recipes, do they bug you at all then, too?
2: You know, I kind of always thought they might have something to do with advertising and and be sort of connected to the way food bloggers make money. So while I find them annoying, um, I always figured they were kind of doing something for food bloggers, but I wasn't sure what.
1: So then how did you start looking into this and, and why were you so intrigued?
2: Well, I kind of noticed over the years, people complaining about this, about having to read through a childhood story and trying to kind of hunt for the actual recipe. And I thought um, now is kind of a good time to explore the economics of food blogs, because so many of us are cooking at home. And I've heard stories of so many food bloggers seeing incredible traffic boosts right now. And there were a lot of different things I wanted to look into when it comes to food blogs. You know, I could have done a whole story on marketing or on social media, the (laughs) advertising part of it, Um, the fact that most food blogs you find are made by women. But I set out to kind of answer this question, why are the recipes buried and how does that connect to how food bloggers make money?
1: And there's kind of a local connection when we look at buried recipes, someone trying to, quote unquote, uh, solve it, right?
2: Right. So Gizem Hoja runs this startup called Commerce Owl, and he's right now developing this platform that would allow food bloggers to charge readers for exclusive access to their recipes. So it would be kind of like the Substack of food blogs. And uh, he said the platform is just in the beta Uh, testing phase right now. Um, But his dream is that food bloggers could make even more money than they do from traditional ads this way, especially if they build a big audience.
1: Oh, yeah. Everyone kind of creates their own subscriber group kind of thing.
2: Yeah. And it would work really well if you're really popular and have a lot of people contributing.
1: Were you surprised about some of the stuff you found when you started digging into the behind the scenes of food blogging?
2: You know, I think that the thing that surprised me the most was just how lucrative this can be if you're good at it. So the food blogger I talked to, Rosanna Velasco, she's been doing this for years. um, And it's taken a while to get to this point. But she's now earning $6,000 a month. So that translates to more than my salary. And this is really a full time job for her. And I always thought food blogging was more of a side hustle for people. But really, the famous food bloggers can make A lot of money through advertising, um, as well as sponsored content, too. I'm now going to add the rest of the dough ingredients. Rosanna Velasco is hard at work in her Winnipeg kitchen. Cracking an egg. She's making Korean-style garlic bread, stuffed with sweetened cream cheese. Just going to pour the yeast in a bowl. This treat will go farther than feed her husband and three kids. It's going on her baking blog woman scribbles, where she expects it will reach thousands of people. Take a snapshot of the of the formed shaggy dough to give the readers an idea of how I, a dough that is ready for kneading looks like. Like many recipe posts, this one will have a familiar structure. The recipe will be buried at the end of the post. The strategy behind this structure? is all about search engine optimization, or SEO. The stuff that makes any content, recipe or otherwise, land on the front page of a Google search. Here are three things Google likes. Expertise, authority, and trustworthiness. There's even an acronym for it, E-A-T, no pun intended. So posting a recipe alone doesn't cut it. Daniela Furtado is an SEO consultant in Toronto. She says food bloggers use keywords to impress the Google gods. So a keyword is pretty much a query. So, for example, if I'm looking for chocolate chip cookies on Google, then the blog post and the recipe has to include chocolate chip cookies throughout the article. And so they want to be able to use that as often as possible um, so that they can get on the first page. If food bloggers didn't structure their cookie recipes this way, they would drown in a sea of other cookie-related content. Cookie listicles, cookie jars, cookie monster, and so on. Making the search for recipes harder for everyone. And if no one found those recipes, bloggers wouldn't earn much from ads. Bottom line is, you might think online recipes are free, but like everything else that's free on the internet, Gmail, YouTube, Facebook. You're paying with your attention. When it comes to food blogs, there are real people behind the stories, doing real work. Initially, the hope then was to, um, to have something, to work on something that's my passion and potentially make it a career. The more traffic, the more ad revenue. And in Rosanna's case, it's adding up. Nine years ago, her blog was just a side hustle. Now it's her full-time job. My blog increased its traffic by more than 300 or 400 percent. It, like, yeah, everybody, everybody wants to bake bread. As Canadians scroll through sourdough recipes, food bloggers are cashing in. The best ones know what we're searching for and how to package it.
1: The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton and our team is James Evans, Christina Silva. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common and I'm Claire Bonneman. Thank you for joining us this week. There's always so much more to know so you can get to The Loop with us every Friday or you can get in touch. You can send us an email, theloop at cbc.ca. You can leave us a rating or a review wherever you found us or give us a shout on social media using the hashtag #TheLoopCBC. And help others get into the loop. Share us with your friends, your family, your senior pen pal. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you're driving to Jasper for spring break, (laughs) it's a great way to pass the time. Kill half an hour on the road. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.